0: What do we understand about the causes, consequences, and solutions for climate change? What are the psychological, cultural, and political reasons some people get engaged and others don't? And how important is climate change communication?
1: Dr. Anthony Lesserwitz is the founder and director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and a senior research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. He is an internationally recognized expert on public climate change beliefs, attitudes, policy support, and behavior, along with the psychological, cultural, and political factors that shape them. He has published more than 250 scientific articles, chapters, and reports, and has worked with a plethora of agencies to combat climate change. The World Economic Forum and the National Academy of Sciences, just to name a couple. He was the recipient of the Environmental Innovator Award from the Environmental Protection Agency. And in 2020, he was named the second most influential climate scientist in the world by Reuters. He's also the host of Climate Connections, a radio program broadcast each day on more than 700 stations worldwide.
0: Anthony Lesserwitz, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process.
1: Uh, Thanks, Mia. It's great to be with you.
0: So you, as director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, do something that I think is vital, and people are just now realizing how important that is. It's not just doing the climate science, but it's communicating that effectively to people so that they can take action and be part of the solution.
2: Yeah. So what we do is we study how do people respond to the issue of climate change? So what do people around the world understand or misunderstand about the causes, the consequences and solutions? How do they perceive the risks? So the likelihood and severity of different types of impacts from sea level rise to the health impacts. What kinds of policies do they support or oppose? And then what kinds of behaviors are people engaged in or willing to change in order to be part of climate solutions? Those are just, they're infinite. But I mean, broadly speaking, that could be how we use waste or conserve energy at home and on the road. It includes our consumer behavior. Will we prefer the products and services that are better for the climate? But also to what extent are people willing to reward or punish companies for their action or inaction on climate change? A hugely important kind of behavior is our social behavior, including communication. Do we talk about this? Or more often, why don't we talk about it? And last but not least is, of course, political behavior. What leads some people to become active citizens to say, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and just watch the world burn. I want to do what I can to roll up my sleeves, get involved and make a difference in my sphere of influence. It could be your own household, your neighborhood, your local school system. It could be running for Congress and everything else in between. So just to say there are lots of different things there. And then as scientists, Our ultimate question is answering why. What are the psychological, the cultural, the political reasons why some people get really engaged with this issue, others are kind of apathetic, and some are downright dismissive and hostile, or at least they are here in the United States, which thankfully is not the case in most of the rest of the world.
0: Yes, I think that there's a global awareness and I've seen a lot of it in the states and not just among activists. Recent court cases and young people in Montana bringing the government to court over their right to planetary health and their health because they'll be dealing with climate change for much longer than those of us who are older. So you were talking about the why and what is the why and how do you overcome that and how do you disseminate the knowledge more effectively?
2: So the why really depends on where you are. People are not all the same. There is no such thing as the public. There are many, many, many different publics within a state, within a country, within the world, right? So one of the first cardinal rules of effective communication is know your audience. Who are they? What do they know? What do they think they know? Who do they trust? Where do they get their information? What are their underlying values? And it's only once you know who they are that you as a communicator can go more than halfway to try to meet them where they are, not where you are where they are. And that's so easy to say, but it's actually so hard for so many of us within the climate community to do because we're steeped in this issue. We want to talk about things, let's take a crazy example, like there's a lot of discussion in the policy circles now about border adjustment taxes. I can tell you right now, most people in the world have no idea what a border adjustment tax is, and they don't care what a border adjustment tax is. They don't want to talk about border adjustment taxes. They want to talk about, well, can you help me understand why the weather seems so crazy? Why are we experiencing? all these fires and floods and increasingly severe storms, they're still having the conversation about is climate change even real or is it human caused or how much should I be worried about it? So again, it's about as a communicator, figuring out what your audience is, where they are in their own learning journey and meeting them on their path to help them take the next step in their learning journey, which might look very different than the learning journey that you took. And so my larger way of saying it is that there are many, many, many roads to Damascus. You don't need to force everybody the same path. I happen to come through the door of climate science because I had the enormous privilege of working with some of the world's leading climate scientists for four years. It's what opened my eyes. I came through the door of science, but also personal experience because of where I was living at the time. But for other people, they're going to come in through the door of jobs in the economy or through their faith and religion, or because they're a young person worried about their future, or they're a grandparent worried about their legacy. And thousands of additional pathways. And those are all perfectly fine pathways. So again, your job as a communicator is to find out where they are and help them take the next step.
0: So really, it starts with listening then.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the most important things in communication. And yet what we tend to assume is that communication is all about talking, right? Actually, the first part of communication is listening.
0: So, as you're listening, as you say, there's a regional emphasis. Whether people have seen, you know, destructions of their local forests or their rivers, or you know, sometimes I think that bringing it home on a very personal level as health, have you noticed that there's increases in the number of cancers or illnesses that are caused by airborne pollutants? It brings it home something that they can see every day.
2: Yeah, so we actually have a national radio program called Yale Climate Connections. It's also a podcast and all the stories are available on the website. But there's a reason why we call it Climate Connections, because again, it's about taking this abstract idea for most people and connecting the dots between that abstract idea and the people and the places and the things that we already care about. People do not have to become climate scientists. Thank God. They do not need to become climate scientists in order to be worried about this issue. But if your kid has asthma, have you ever watched your kid struggle to breathe because of increasing allergens in the air or smoke in the air, et cetera? Like... As a parent, you know how scary that is. And so the fact is that we are creating a world that is increasing asthma rates, that is increasing allergy rates, that's even increasing things like the toxicity of poison oak and poison ivy. There are so many health dimensions of this that most people just frankly don't yet understand and gotten to infectious diseases yet. So there are many ways to connect this to the things that people already care about. Do you like chocolate? You should care about climate change. Do you like coffee? You should care about climate change. You know, again, there are many, many ways that people can connect this issue to their
1: own values.
0: Yeah. And traditionally, we've seen the amount of money that's spent on the lobbyists, just talking about the fossil fuel industry. They've known for a long time the importance of communication. And even though the stories underneath the story that they're telling is actually quite negative, but they find a way to spin it. So they've been ahead of the environmentalists for decades. Sometimes they find their ways working for both environmental groups and the fossil fuel industry at the same time, which is quite puzzling to me. But yeah, So what can we take from, if you're going to the the handbook of lobbyists, what can we learn from them in terms of how to get messaging across in a positive way?
2: Well, first of all, you're exactly right. They understood the power of communicating their message long before the environmental community did, which the environmental community tends to have been historically dominated by professionals, especially professional economists, lawyers who work on coming up with new policies, people working in the political space and so on, often with expertise that is not communicated. Communication. And so they've largely left the information environment to the fossil fuel industry and its deep pockets. Like they built a incredibly sophisticated, I mean, as, a, as someone who works in climate change communication, I, I'm horrified by what they have done and what they've communicated. But from a communication scientist standpoint, like you got to be impressed because they spent a lot of money to do this really, really well. They established think tanks. They created fake scientists to come up with their own messages. They've spent millions and are still spending millions of dollars on advertising and op-eds and direct lobbying to decision makers and so on. So like it is an amazing system that they have built to communicate their message because they know how important that is. It's important to influence policymakers. It's important to influence journalists. It's important to influence the general public. And in the end, their primary interest is very clear. They're some of the most profitable companies on the planet because they mine and drill coal, oil, and gas. And they would like the status quo to remain the status quo for as long as possible because it means they get more and more money. It's like pretty clear motivation, but they have used every possible tool, including hijacking our politics as a way to maintain their industrial dominance. But we're in this historic transition right now from basically a 19th century energy system of, again, digging stuff out of the ground and setting it on fire to power our societies to a 21st century energy system, which is harnessing the energy that's flowing around us at all times from the sun, from the wind, from the tides, from the heat beneath our feet. So we're in like one of the biggest transitions in human civilizational history. And their basic goal is to try to stop or slow it down as much as possible. And that's really the race that we are now in is can we make that transition and thereby stop carbon emissions? that are building this heat-trapping blanket in the atmosphere and causing all these ever more extreme types of events, can we stop polluting quickly enough to head off far worse consequences coming, as bad as they have been even just this past summer? This is going to be a cool summer compared to the future.
0: Indeed, we're experiencing the effects of behaviors that we did years ago this summer. So, of course, it's going to get warmer even as we improve our behaviors and we transition. And yes, renewable energy has the potential to be even more abundant, even more profitable because it's almost free. You can't say anything is completely free or completely carbon neutral. There'll always be some cost of materials, but it's a lot healthier than the fossil fuel option, which is not an option. And so part of this effective communication, as you say, like a listening process, it's about empowering and encouraging and fostering collaboration. And could you just tell us about some of those successful campaigns where we've seen progress, but just to go into the specifics of some things you've done?
2: Sure. I mean, there's so many to point to. And I guess probably the easiest thing to do is to just say, go visit Yale Climate Connections, because what we try to do is to feature the voices and the stories of everyday people from every walk of life across the country and around the world who have rolled up their sleeves and are demonstrating, role modeling to the rest of us, what it looks like to take action. I will say as someone who's been working in this area for over three decades, my batteries get charged every day because I hear what people are doing. And in fact, our research tells us this as well. When we ask Americans, what gives you hope? What gives you the greatest sense that this is solvable? The number one answer by far is seeing other people taking action because we're social animals. We're hugely influenced by what we see other people saying and doing. And if your perception is that nobody talks about this and nobody's doing anything about it, then most people are just like, well, then I don't even want to think about it because I can't do anything about it. Maybe I can do some stuff on my own, but I'm not going to really engage this issue because this is too big. That can be a conclusion. But when people hear about all the millions of people in this country and around the world who are in fact, taking action at every single level, people find that one, very, very inspiring, but more importantly, it's empowering because they see that I can do this too. And again, you don't have to run for Congress, though, please do if you feel so inclined, but you don't have to. There are literally so many things that you can do within your own life, your work life or your kid's school. Like there's a major need right now to transition all school buses. Like if you've ever driven behind a diesel bus with the smoke billowing out, you know, that's not something you want to breathe. We put our kids on those buses, right? So we need to transition to electric buses and there's tremendous financial resources to help communities do that. And there's an incredibly important role that parents can play in their school to demand that transition as quickly as possible. So it's just one of literally thousands of things that people are doing all over the country.
0: Yeah, and it's not just a blue or a red issue because a lot of times it's been pegged like divide and conquer Democrats were more involved traditionally. You know, as you go to those red states where there's vast wild areas, you can engage people with what they're concerned with. And it might be that they love hunting and fishing, but you can't do that because there's no more fish in the rivers or there's declining numbers. So if you think about, as you say, hone the story to what they appreciate and love. So it's not just a story of sacrifice. It's a story of what's dear to you and what you care about.
2: Yeah. And that's exactly what our research shows. Again, we took one of our radio stories, which featured the voice of a hunter fisherman in North Carolina, fabulous North Carolina drawl. I could sit on this guy's porch and just listen to him tell stories for hours, talking about how he is seeing these changes in his own environment, where, for instance, the streams where he had learned how to fish from his parents and grandparents are now too warm to hold fish. Like the fish can't survive in these rivers and streams. And hunters and fishermen all over the country are seeing these changes. Ducks aren't coming back the way they used to. The game isn't where it has historically been. That the the seasons have totally shifted. And again, that the rivers and streams are getting too warm now to even be viable for certain trout species. And so in this story, he's talking about what he's observing and how sad that makes him because it's this loss of identity and tradition that he won't be able to hand these off over to his children and grandchildren. But then he pivots and says, but this isn't just about, you know, sportsmen wanting to catch more fish. This is about the larger problem that climate change presents to us all. It's a national security issue. It's so much more than just about fish. So we tested that story with uh, a variety of different people, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and found that actually it works across the board because everybody can identify with this guy, okay? Everybody, even if you're not a fisherman, his story is so powerful that people move, they're convinced, they're like, oh, I didn't realize this was actually having real effects on real people, real Americans right here, right now. And so it's just to say storytelling is still one of the most powerful ways we have to communicate from one person to another, from one person to millions, and from millions back to one.
0: Yeah, and it could be through the arts. I think the humanities, you know, you have like singer-songwriters or, you know, poets. Something like that could be taken on like an anthem. And then it crosses those political divides of our differences on other subjects.
2: Well, and there's so much creativity happening in this space. Let me just take one of my favorite examples. So everyone, I don't care whether you're a classical music follower or not, you know Vivaldi's Four Seasons, okay? Those songs, everyone has heard them. So there is an orchestra that has taken those and worked with climate scientists to use wherever they're performing, if they're performing in Atlanta or they're performing in San Francisco or in Sydney, Australia, they take how the climate has changed locally and they use those changes to then change the notes within the pieces of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. So you can still recognize them as the songs that they are, but you also now can hear and experience in a way that is not what you get when you look at a scientific chart or read an article in the newspaper, how the local climate is actually shifting, how climate change is affecting each of those four seasons. So it's just like, what a brilliant idea of bringing science and art together to give the listener an embodied experience of something that's very hard to otherwise understand, how our seasons as a whole are shifting.
0: It's so true. I was just talking with author and environmentalist Rick Bass, and he's from Montana. And so he's talking about, you know, Montana is a wonderful place, but it has these distinct seasons but are losing that. So it's one of his stories. And it's funny, you mentioned The Four Seasons, which I love. It's full of so much joy, but also this appreciation for the seasons. And we did a special series of episodes last Thursday with Max Richter and leading environmental scientists and artists, adding their voice. And Richter, he's remastered The Four Seasons, so we were very lucky to have that music and then the scientists' voices, the environmentalist voices and artists all talking about their love for the planet and what we can do. Yeah. Absolutely. And so just tell us a little bit about your journey. You came from a traditional science and then you understood that the communication was a place where you could make a difference. So my own background
2: is that when I was an undergraduate, I was studying international relations. This was before the end of the Cold War. So I thought I had a long career ahead of me trying to keep the world from blowing itself with nuclear weapons. So I was studying like nuclear policy and so on. Literally six months before I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down and my international relations degree turned into... Into a history degree like that. And so I ended up following a friend out to Aspen, Colorado with the idea that I was just going to you know make some money and then travel around the world and try to figure out what I was going to do next. And instead, I got incredibly lucky and I fell into a position, one of the first positions at an organization called the Aspen Global Change Institute, where I spent the next four years working with the world's leading climate scientists, ozone scientists, you know, biodiversity scientists, and so on. And it changed my life. I learned so much about what was actually going on. And this is back in 1990s. So long before most people were even really aware of climate change and the impacts it was already having. Long story short is that by the end, however, I was getting a little frustrated, not with the people, the scientists themselves are just phenomenal. I'm still very close friends with many, but I kept coming back to, okay, but the reason why we have climate change or ozone depletion or a biodiversity extinction crisis is because of humans. So I thought the answers to these problems... Don't lie in the natural sciences. The answers to these lie in the human sciences and the humanities of what is it about us that gets us into these problems in the first place? And how do we engage human beings and human societies as a way to figure out how to solve them? So that's what ultimately led me to this career. where looking at, again, what are these underlying psychological, cultural, political factors that shape our ability to even recognize these problems, let alone then taking action to solve them?
0: Right. It's in the individual, it's in the political, but yes, we caused the problem. So it would make sense to go to us to solve it, to redress that balance. And so much when you think about the environment, it's these green open spaces, but a lot of what we can do it in cities, we've seen a lot of the advances and the decarbonization happening now in cities. Of course, we're living through a decade of transformation and we hear a lot about smart cities, smart buildings, but a lot of people in cities have little idea of what their future is is going to look like. I mean, what are your reflections in terms of housing transport you know there's this transition to working from home and protecting our cities from heat waves and storm surges transportation
2: yeah cities are going to be absolutely core to solving this problem but so are rural areas i mean frankly the whole world is vulnerable to climate change in different ways and we're all bound together like cities don't exist without the food that comes from the rural areas and likewise cities provide tremendous benefits back to rural areas even though people don't always recognize that so cities are going to be critical let's not forget We're on a planet already has 8 billion people on it and it's growing. And so there is a lot that we need to do to both retrofit our existing cities, which is expensive and hard because they were laid down sometimes thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago in a different climate with different assumptions about how one should live, like LA was built on the highway based on the automobile. So it's very difficult for LA as a city to now go, okay, now we actually wanna get back to providing rail transit for everybody. They're doing it, but it's expensive and it's hard to retrofit. But nonetheless, absolutely essential work that has to be done. But at the same time, the world is building lots and lots of new mega cities that are gonna house tens of millions of people. And we now have the opportunity to build them for the 21st century. We don't have to follow the same design patterns of the past. In fact, That would be stupid to use the same design patterns of the past. So this really now opens up enormous creativity and experimentation and innovation to say, okay, what are the ways that we actually want to live together? Right? So one of the big things that we're seeing a huge shift on is that in the past cities used to be very segregated and divided, not just in terms of people, but in terms of function. Like here's the section where everybody goes to work and then miles away is where everybody goes shopping. And then miles away from that is where everybody goes to school. And then miles away from that is where everybody lives. So we separated out all these core functions of actual life, which meant that now we have to transit and spend hours moving ourselves and our groceries from one place to another. Well, what if you just change that design so that now you have communities where shopping, work, education, and your home are all close are all within walking distance. And by the way, green space, where you can reconnect with the natural world. And so what we're finding is that's overwhelmingly what people want. In fact, one of the studies found that single thing that makes people most unhappy in America is commuting time, being stuck in traffic. That makes people more frustrated and depressed than anything. So it's just to say, this is where design can make an enormous influence on not just our carbon footprint and our carbon emissions, which of course is important, but improves our quality of life includes our health, includes our educational outcomes, and so on, because now we have vibrant community, because again, we're social animals, unlike
1: our prior structures of design. As a student who is constantly worried about the state that our decision-making towards the environment is heading, it is refreshing to hear the power that communicating our issues correctly has. It is part of the reason that I got involved with the One Planet podcast in the first place. Hearing Dr. Anthony Lesserbitz advocate for this kind of communication at all levels makes me look forward to contributing to similar strategies in the future. When I see how climate change has become such a divisive issue in our country, I can't help but think how much of this is due to the lack of accurate information that people have about the issues that are facing our planet. I will say, I am left feeling inspired, however, while hearing Dr. Lesserovitz talk on the importance of organization and shared struggle to combat the issues that we face. When we are all fronted with or facing the impacts of climate change in similar ways, our shared experience gives us the common ground that we need to mobilize and advocate for adequate change in our society. I'm grateful that so many people will hear this important conversation that Mia and Dr. Lesserovitz have had. So now, back to the interview
0: the planet's healthy. Psychologically, we have that sense of well-being. And yeah, it's a little bit easier in Europe than to retrofit cities because they were designed before the car. So we do still have a lot of these communities just because that's the way cities were designed. And so that does make it easier. And it's nice to see the covenant of mayors, you know, getting together and saying, how can we all improve on sustainable cities for the future? And i love to see those kind of uh, transitions taking place. And another thing is this sense of empowerment. Uh, A lot of people feel like, oh, I'm a single voice and I can't do much. But sometimes if you're, and I was speaking to Sue Inches about this, and she's in Maine, so it's a small state. And she's told me that, you know, if you get five people writing letters to their congressman, they'll start to listen. Those five people, that's just, you know, a group of friends saying they're going to write. Obviously, it's a little bit more in larger states, but still, we don't realize how powerful we are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a fundamental issue with Americans is that we are a country steeped in the idea of individualism. And so as a result, we tend to think, well, what can I do as an individual? And yes, of course, there's important things that you can do as an individual, but your true power is organizing with other people. And to be honest, again, we're social animals. It's way more fun. You're going to go much farther together with other people, bringing your voices together into a harmony than you can ever do as a solo singer here. So it's just to say that's where real power lies is in people coming together in organizations to demand greater action. And to your point, that's what we know about social change. Social change doesn't happen when nine out of 10 people are out marching in the streets because they never do that. Okay. Social change happens because there's what we call an issue public, a relatively small proportion of a public that's passionate about the issue that they are demanding action on. And we all know what issue publics look like. This is the pro-choice or the anti-abortion movement. It is the pro or anti-immigration movement. It's the uh, gun control movement or the NRA. Okay, These are all well-understood organizations or groups of organizations that are pursuing their particular thing. The, the fact is on climate change and the environment, there are millions Dozens of millions of people in this country who aren't just already alarmed about climate change, but want to get involved, but have never been asked. So this community is actually sitting on enormous potential political power, but only if it gets organized.
0: Indeed, And I understand a lot of people think it's overwhelming, you know, like what do they focus on? But I think one thing, too, is the idea that we'll overnight transition to renewable energy. That's not going to happen overnight. Of course, it's not. But a lot of things is like we waste so much energy, right? And so it's a savings of money if you can conserve that energy. If the energy that you use to heat your house then is kind of saved and then it can be used later for air conditioning. So there's this circular model. And when you can adapt to that way of thinking, it's kind of hard thinking about circular economy and stuff, but becomes one of you just feel good when you're not wasting.
2: Sure, There are so many things that people can do. And those individual actions, of course, are ultimately what we all need to do. Like we all need to get our energy from different sources. We need to use different ways to move our things from one place to another. We need to live in housing that feeds our soul as well as our body, as well as our community. So absolutely, all of those individual things can make a real difference. But I do want to come back to how important it is that you act as part of larger communities. Back to my example with school buses. Like it's one thing if one parent comes to the school board and says, hey, I'm really worried about the health of my kid. I want you to make the transition to all electric buses. It's so much more powerful if it's five parents. It's even more powerful if it's 25 parents and it's unstoppable if it's 50 parents. Okay. So it's just to say that when you can bring your voices together, You dramatically increase your own effectiveness as an individual.
0: So how is Yale fostering collaboration with some organizations? How are you finding that common ground to move forward and get that real momentum?
2: So we find in our work that there are lots of different types of organizations that are interested in learning from what we have learned. So, again, know your audience. Who are they? And the kinds of insights that we've developed in just one example is we've identified what we call global warming. Six Americas, six different groups within the public that each respond to this issue in very different ways and just very quickly. There are a spectrum from the alarmed are fully convinced it's human caused and serious and urgent and want to know what can they do, but they don't know what to do and nobody's ever asked them to act. That's over 75 million people to then the concerned, the cautious, the disengaged, the doubtful, and then the dismissive who are fully convinced that this is not actually a real problem at all. So just that framework alone has turned out to be tremendously useful thinking about how to better communicate We have companies coming to us trying to say, well, how can we use this to better understand our customers or our potential markets? We've got lots and lots of advocacy organizations coming to us to say, how can you help us think about how to communicate climate change to our group, whether they're Maybe we work with hunters and fishermen. Maybe we work with churches and synagogues. Yeah, Maybe we work with unions. Maybe we work with doctors and nurses. How can we use these insights to better engage our own constituency? And then educators are absolutely using this to better understand students or the larger public that's coming to, say, science museums and art museums and so on and so forth. So just to say that the kind of work we do turns out to be really, really useful to lots of different people in the community.
0: And speaking of students, I know that you must have observed this wave of eco-anxiety that young people are experiencing, I think more than ever before. How can we work with that? A sense of anxiety is important. It's realism. But how can we harness that kind of urgency without becoming overwhelmed, which I know is a concern for a lot of our listening students?
2: So we've been studying this actually nationally and in our our most recent study, we think that there's about 3% of Americans who are experiencing what we would call debilitating climate anxiety. In other words, it's now affecting daily life. Like they're unable to make plans about the future or, you know, it's affecting their overall well-being and so on. So that's maybe 10 million people. That is not an insignificant thing. And I think that is a population that has grown over time. So that's one group that we absolutely need to be supportive of. And for anyone listening who feels like they're in that, don't try to tough this out by yourself. Again, find other people to talk to. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family members. Talk to mental health professionals. That's why they're here is to help you begin to navigate some of these things. But what's really fascinating is that there's a larger group of people, that's about 8% of the country, that have experienced one or more attribute of what we call climate uh, anxiety. But when we look at their actions, they're far more likely to actually be taking action. Okay? They're far more likely to be making changes in their own life to address climate change. And they're far more likely to be working with organizations, to be calling their member of Congress, to be donating money to environmental groups, to actually joining as a volunteer with climate groups to demand greater action. And frankly, at the larger scale, Americans as a whole, the whole country still needs to become more worried about climate change, not less, because worry turns out to be an incredibly powerful motivator of action, as long as it doesn't get so extreme that it becomes becomes pathological.
0: Indeed. And you must have a few areas that you focus on particular legislation that you see that you want to see passed, you know, as you focus your energies to be the most effective to make the greatest change.
2: Well, you know, there's no one thing that I look to because let's just be clear. This is a super wicked problem. It is a system of systems problem because the fundamental cause, the burning of fossil fuels and land use change as well, are absolutely central to modern civilization. I mean, fossil fuels is basically embedded in the clothes we're wearing, the food we eat, the transportation we do, the buildings that we inhabit. I mean, everything around us was built and or still is dominated by the use and burning of fossil fuels. So the fact is that this is an incredibly complex system and all of these things need to change. And yet, even though that can seem daunting, it's also incredibly exciting because it means that there are many points of entry. And again, getting back to what are you passionate about? Some kids are really into fashion. Fantastic. Okay. because Guess what? Fashion, especially fast fashion, is one of the major sources of carbon pollution. So how can you think differently about the clothes that you decide to buy and wear? And that's just one way. Maybe your passion is sports. Turns out climate change is having enormous impacts on the health of athletes. But in the flip side, we're seeing stadiums and the National Football League and National League Baseball and hockey taking climate action because they recognize that one, this is a threat to their own sports. And two, it's an enormous opportunity to engage their fans. Okay, just take one example. Fenway Field, the home of the Boston Red Sox, on their roof, has an organic garden. And they feed their fans with the food that they grow right there on top of the stadium. Is that going to solve climate change? No, not all by itself. But it is just one of many, many, many examples of what groups all over the country in areas that you may not think of are already doing. So it's just to say that, yes, it's a huge and complicated problem. But it also means there are many, many points of entry by which you can start to pull on your own thread in that complicated knot.
0: Yes, fashion and of course, food, as you mentioned, we all just change our diets and we can be healthier, we can live longer, healthier lives. You're working with Yale, so that's university education. I would love to see younger people, even though we provide some kind of environmental awareness week or Earth week, Earth month, but I haven't seen it, not that I'm aware of, young people being educated about their planet. I mean, because that's an age in which you get commitment and also just like you form the behaviors that will save our planet and conserve energy.
2: Yeah, there's so much that needs to be done. Climate change is still not well taught across most of the country. But again, this is one of those areas where, okay, you're a young person. You could be in elementary school, middle school or high school. You're passionate about climate change. Well, what are you doing to demand that your school teach climate change? Okay, kids are banding together. I'll just One group I'll point to is Action for Climate Emergency, which supports kids to basically say, let us not only demand that we get taught this material, but they actually form together to do things like energy audits of their school. Turns out the school is also a user of fossil fuels. So what could we do? And so this actually becomes a learning opportunity where you can use the school as a living laboratory and say, where's our energy being used? Where's our energy being wasted? Maybe we should think about changing out our light bulbs. Maybe we should paint our roofs white to reflect more sunlight, et cetera, et cetera. And then bringing these findings to school and administrators with solutions where kids are finding, hey, you know what? If we replaced all those oil burning furnaces with solar power, we would save $200,000 a year which means that you could pay your teachers better or you could hire more teachers. So it's just to say that the solutions have now gotten so good and so effective that in many cases, kids are finding they can actually save the school money, which absolutely gets the attention of any principal. So as well as just being able to say, look, we want to have some ownership of our education and we care about this issue. We know we're going to inhabit a world that is being increasingly affected by climate change. We want to know more about it. So please incorporate this into the science classroom, the social studies classroom, the English classroom, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I'm really happy to see the growing popularity of the divestment movement. I think this is really great with so many universities divesting from fossil fuels and of course, transforming their schools. And I was alarmed talking about the issue of lobbyists to learn that this F-minus database where they're listing like who the lobbyists for fossil fuels are employed by. And sometimes even without organizations, they could be schools, universities, arts organizations, museums, lobbyists could be working for them, which is considered a positive for the politicians that they then lobby, but at the same time, their biggest clients might be the fossil fuel industry and then using their benevolent organizations that they work for as a kind of Trojan horse. And the politicians kind of think, oh, well, I want to support my community, but then it comes with this and it's a package deal in some way. And I was really shocked to learn about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that you're getting at, and it's again, one of those things that most people don't think about is where are your investments? So if you have a 401k, you have mutual funds, you're invested in any way, or you have money in a bank, have you ever thought about where that money is being invested? And there's been analyses that show that in fact, basically your investments in banks or stocks or bonds or whatever, pension funds can basically double your individual carbon footprint because you are supporting institutions that are continuing to invest in fossil fuels. So this is actually a huge new area that many people are starting to say, whoa, wait a second. Like I've been working and I've been caring about climate change and I've been doing what I can to recycle and to get solar energy and buy a more fuel efficient car and I'm changing my diet. And I'm doing all this good stuff but they didn't realize that their investments are doing just as much harm as all those things that they've been trying to work on themselves. So just to say, there's a lot of really interesting work now being done to identify those bad actors in the financial sector and to empower consumers to say, you know what? I'm not just going to take my money elsewhere. I'm going to communicate to those financial institutions why I'm taking my money elsewhere, because that's the signal they need in order to change their behavior. Because if they lose business, they will change.
0: Yeah, we have to be really careful about what is done in our name. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a job to keep track of all this, but we can do it. As you say, we have more power together and writing some letters can make a big difference. I mean, a lot of us are now thinking about the potential of AI and also the risks and the need for governance. But what are your thoughts on the potential, the possibilities for accelerating the transformation with AI in the new technologies?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's so much we're still coming to grips with about this, but there are plenty of things to be worried about with AI and misinformation is like at the top of that list. So again, back to communication. That said, there's a lot of what's not getting enough attention is what you might call dumb AI, okay? Not the chat GPT, which is getting all the attention these days, but using AI to basically dramatically reduce our emissions. So I'll just give an example. Airline emissions is a growing source of carbon pollution because of all the millions of flights that are done every year. Well, it turns out that a third of that climate impact comes from Contrail's You've all seen them. They look like white, long clouds coming out the back of the plane. It turns out, and this is a project that was just done with American Airlines and Google, is that they applied AI to that and found that if they just make slight adjustments to the height that the plane is flying or the particular route it's flying, that doesn't change its ability to get to where it's going in any way, but just slightly alters it because of atmospheric conditions, temperatures, humidity, et cetera, they can dramatically reduce contrails. Now, that's only possible because it takes enormous amounts of data in real time, second by second, to be able to then adjust the flight so you can eliminate contrails, thereby reducing global warming. So that's just one of literally thousands and thousands of examples of how these kinds of new tools and this ability to process enormous amounts of data in a way that we just can't do as human beings by ourselves is opening up all kinds of new opportunities to to address climate change.
0: Yeah. And obviously, with climate change, there is a need for this transnational collaboration. And that kind of thing can be just calculated much better when you have this kind of central databasing and that kind of communication that we can't do as individuals. And so tell me a little bit about the classes that you yourself teach. So the
2: main class I teach is called strategic environmental communication, and it basically helps students figure out how to be smart in the way that they design communication campaigns. And people often immediately go straight to tactics. So to oversimplify that, they'll be like, well, then I want to communicate about my issues. So I'm going to create a TikTok channel because I know TikTok is really popular and everybody's on TikTok. Everybody's talking about TikTok. So let me do that. And that's not the right place to start. The right place to start is to start with what's your goal? What are you actually trying to achieve? What's your theory of change? What do you think that you can do that's going to ultimately lead to your goal? And until you've really figured out what that is, you can't start talking about tactics. Because if in fact your theory of change is that, let's say, going back to my example about investors, and you're really talking about people who are retirees, well, guess what? TikTok is probably not the best channel to reach people over 65, right? That would be dumb. So it's just... When you start with what your goal is and what your strategy is, then you start talking about things that we usually want to immediately talk about is, okay, should I start a TikTok channel? Do I need to reach out to YouTube influencers or whatever? Those are just particular tools in the toolbox. You want to choose the right tool for the purpose.
0: And we've seen some really, I think, and not everyone knows about the online email campaigns have been some of the most effective and actually moving kind of political campaigns. And people think of email as being old, but I guess like move on would work. Would you use that? And there are a number of them. Mostly they're left-leaning, but they have these huge databases and they get quick action and it's enough to show and move the needle on certain political issues.
2: Oh, absolutely. And this is always our obsession with whatever's the new fancy thing, the shiny object. We have to remember people still read books. People still read actual newspapers on print. People still listen to radio. People still watch television. It's just that we're getting additional layers and layers and layers of new channels that can communicate with audiences. And so again, that's why it's so important in this increasingly fragmented communication landscape with all these new ways to reach people why you need to be really strategic. Because in the end, you only have so much money, time, talent, resource. And so you have to be very careful and thoughtful about where are you going to commit those very limited resources to have the greatest impact.
0: As you think about the the future and the kind of planet that we're leaving the next generation, perhaps what you tell your students or your children, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember?
2: That nothing is destined. This is in our hands. This goes back to our early part of our conversation. Human beings created these problems. Human beings can solve these problems. And that's really the ultimate challenge in front of us is, will we figure out a way as humanity, as a species to live in a sustainable way on this planet? To not break the life support systems of the planet first, but secondly, to build lives that we want to live in. This isn't about just how do we avoid the harms? It's about how do we design our own lives, taking control of our own systems to create the world that we want to live in, that has the well-being and the health and the prosperity and the relationships that we all are seeking. So it's just we are the only thing that is going to fix this, and we have the power.
0: Well, I find that such a hopeful message because we accept it's in our hands. It gives me the power. It gives us all the power. So thank you so much, Anthony Lesserwitz and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and Climate Connections for advancing climate communication, showing us that ordinary citizens have the power to change the world and for your ongoing commitment to bring about political and environmental transformation so we can protect our planet for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creator process.
1: Thanks, Mia. Great to be with you. The One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michelski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Suryavir. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution. Just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.